choosing to be comfortable is not a good idea in Australian economics. Choosing not to play the game is a really silly idea because, uh, you know, those that choose not to do, not to participate in a capitalist country end up fundamentally being broke. Welcome to the Urban Property Investor. I'm your host, Sam Saggers, here to help you crack the code of real estate wealth. Today's show is a code cracker. Yes, folks, we're going to dig into value investing and the profit pain principle. Are you ready for some pain? Well, you need to take some pain to create profit in this world. And we're going to have a little talk about how to go through pain to end up on the other side of it, where you've got a great asset which continues to perform in different market cycles. Hey, if it's your first time tuning in, welcome aboard to the program. Play the show in double speed. Get your life back. Yes, speed me up. If you don't know how to do that, just fiddle with your phone. You'll find a double speed button and you can speed me up. I don't sound like a chipmunk. Hey, uh, welcome back, you crazy urban property investors. I hope you're doing well. I, I hope your urban world is doing fantastic. I hope your investments are working out. Uh, I know there's a lot of people that, uh, you know, are relying on the real estate market to financially free them. And uh, I can assure you, real estate, it's going to have its day right now. It feels uh, obviously a little bit tough, a little bit of pain out there when it comes to holding real estate, a little bit of pain out there, even with the sentiment around buying real estate. So I wanted to have that conversation because it is a really interesting conversation and it really does pertain to value investing. During your stewardship of owning real estate, there are going to be lots of lots of good times and certainly some darker times. I could go back and name many periods over the last decade and a half which have been really flat or even downturns in real estate. Think about what we've been through if we cast our mind back to, for example, 2006. 2007, we had to live through massive hyper supply and high interest rates, really the opposite of what we have today, which is higher rates of interest, but low levels of supply. The polar opposite back in 2006 and 2007, and of course, lots of pain and great buying opportunities to create a profit, the profit pain principle was absolutely at work during that period. We had uh, really lots of development and lots of unsold surplus stock during that period of time. And it was just a buying frenzy to be, uh, to be honest. It was, it was crazy. Like you were picking up deals anywhere from 10 to 45% off 
their uh, value. And uh, it was an amazing, amazing time. Profit came from the pain of the cycle at that point in time. Then, of course, we had the GFC and the world thought, uh, well, a lot of people commentated that Australian property was going to end. And of course, for a short period between sort of 2008, 2009, there were bargains to be had, but it didn't end. And uh, we uh, saw real estate start to grow again. But by 2011, we had the end of the mining boom number two. And of course, that uh, created really, again, a value change in real estate. And even if you think about it, we had further slowdowns with things like uh, foreign investors being chased out of the market. We've had things like APRA stepping in to control debt levels. We've had COVID-19 pandemics. Uh, You know, we've had it all when it comes to real estate. And there are these periods in the micro cycle where there are pain points and, of course, profit opportunities. And so I really wanted to focus in on that today because, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a big part of the opportunity in the marketplace today. And really, uh, the profit to pain principle is a bit of an oxymoron. If you think of bittersweet, how those two words go together is an oxymoron, awfully good uh, and really, when it comes to pain in real estate, there on the other side of that is profit, even though it is an oxymoron. Um, and I can assure you that choosing to be comfortable is not a good idea in Australian economics. Choosing not to play the game is a really silly idea because, uh, you know, those that choose not to do, not to participate in a capitalist country end up fundamentally being broke. So is it a good time to buy? And are there ways to go about buying to soften the cost of owning and holding real estate? Obviously, going and get a mortgage is expensive, Uh, for many people, not everyone, but for many people, many property investors in particular are like, well, uh, how am I going to manage to acquire an asset and can I afford to do it with the rising cost of living expenses? So we're going to have that sort of conversation because really the opposite is choosing comfort and comfort is not a good place to be. So I've always worked on the concept of value investing, the value model, if you like. It's a model designed around the concept that we want capital growth, but we don't necessarily want capital growth at the uh, really challenge of our lifestyle. We don't want capital growth um, just you know, at all costs, which ends up being very short-lived capital growth because we burn a hole in our back pocket. So I've always taught people the value model, and it's generally because most people I kind of assist in real estate 
generally want to spend sort of five, six, seven hundred thousand dollars on property. And of course, to understand value investing, um, you know, it is really about finding capital growth, but also using the rental return of the marketplace. And it's really uh, what I help people do. And really the logic around it is budgetary uh, issues, which the buyer uh, or investor needs to live within. Uh, If um, I was, I don't know, helping and I do help Uh, you know, doctors on millions of dollars a year, they don't really need to worry about the yield so much. Uh, They can invest in great growth opportunities without really needing a value matrix. So today's value matrix is really designed around people who've got a limited amount to put into the market and trying to obviously lessen the burden of trade-offs. There's trade-offs with everything when you uh, do a real estate deal. If we can get the value model right, we'll have less trade-offs, ultimately more value. But I guess if we were to understand the value model, the first concept to understand is known as total return. Total return is really the concept that we're looking for a good level of capital growth, but also a good level of yield performance. Now, again, if you were to study capital growth, the best performing real estate will have the highest growth rate, but the lowest return. So you might find an asset that can perform 10% capital growth per annum, uh, but it's in a marketplace which is exclusive, expensive, discretionary. And of course, that property is so scarce that it is an attraction magnet to the ultra wealthy who pay constantly more than um, than you can imagine for the property. But the return is so low that from an investment point of view, the return could be 1%. And as such, uh, you've got this big burn rate, which for most people, they just can't obviously afford it. But if you were to measure the performance of an asset like that over 10 or 20 or 30 years, it will outperform everything in uh, inside of real estate because the growth rate, if you can pay for the burn, is going to accelerate more so than a value model of investing. And again, for a lot of people, discretionary real estate is within their budget. And if it is, you should get involved with it because the growth rates are spectacular. Now I can I, I own a discretionary property. Uh, it's cost me basically two million dollars of burn cash flow to make four million dollars worth of gain uh, over a ten year period. So not many people can can do that uh, because again, it's it's you know you need to have money in the back pocket to go through that formula. And again, it comes at a cost. The cost could be stress, it could be uh, lifestyle decisions, it could be not, um, you know, 
living those bucket list dreams if you put yourself in that position. However, for many, they can do it. But let's face it, for many others, they can't. So value investing is designed really for that person. Where value investing kind of works is the capital growth rates tend to be around 5 to 7% per annum. And what that means using Rule 72 is if you have a property performing at 5% capital growth rate per annum, your asset's basically going to double in just under 15 years. If you get an asset where the capital growth rate is around 7%, your real estate will compound and double in around 10 years. So there's no right or wrong. Everyone's got different budgets and different back pockets. And so this is why real estate is never an even race. So as a value investor, we probably can't reach out for those 9 and 10% capital growth rates because they tend to already be in marketplaces which have previously performed so well and they're a well-trodden path. However, we can look at marketplaces and products and suburbs and properties to invest in that perform anywhere from 5 to 7%. From a rental return point of view, we obviously can also look at real estate, which performs from a gross rent anywhere from sort of 3.5% up to around 5.5%. So really what we're um, analyzing is real estate, which has got good growth potential, but the yield is not so terrible that it doesn't provide cash flow. And obviously, we're going to use some of that rental return to pay for the capital growth we're going for. So total return is really the growth rate plus the yield. And you can net it out or you can gross it out. It's uh, completely up to you. But really for today's conversation, if we had a 5% capital growth rate and 5% yield, we would have a 10% total return. Obviously, that is going to put us in a pretty good financial position. Uh, It can be better if we can get more capital growth. But the thing to understand is a lot of people will fail at getting capital growth because they use uh, what is known as positive cash flow. So, With a high capital growth rate and a low yield, let's say, for example, a 9% capital growth rate and a 1% yield, you're going to have big burn. You're going to be very negative in cash flow. The opposite is positive cash flow. But the problem, of course, with positive cash flow real estate, and I've certainly got the lashes on the back around investing in too much of that over my time, is you can get yields of 6, 7, 8%, which are very good because they pay for the interest rates and, and costs to own the real estate. But what often happens is you get a 1% to 2% capital growth rate. Your return on your investment is just nothing. And so years go by, 10, 15 years, and your property's still worth the same as what you paid, albeit you're getting rents that cover the mortgage. So you get this kind of going nowhere effect. 
So the value model is really the midpoint between the two. And um, the concept really behind it is more so based around having uh, good levels of acceptable growth with good levels of rental performance and not putting too much pressure on your back pocket. Now, obviously, when it comes to the concept of total return, we need to understand that we can do this in two ways. We can be a value investor in really two ways if we're going to hold real estate. The first way is buy, renovate, rent, recycle. Buy, renovate, rent, recycle, the Brewer investment model. The second is buy, depreciate, rent, recycle. The recycle part is obviously extracting equity from the gains you've created over the period of ownership. So obviously we always want something that's going to go up. Uh, when it comes to which asset to consider, uh, it's really, again, how you want to look at value investing uh, because obviously depreciation can play a part on improving your yield performance and your cash flow management. Remember, cash flow is king in the context that we want cash flow to prop up the growth we're going for when it comes to real estate investment. So the best way to understand it is really there are three uh, players that produce cash flow. There's you and your job. There's the tax man and really how you can use gearing and tax effectiveness and depreciation to get more cash flow. And of course, there is the tenant and the tenant obviously handles a large proportion of your debt to the bank by paying rent. So we always want a tenant that can handle rent increases and we always want investments in areas where rents have the ability to go on and double in value over time. So if we think about it right, uh, depreciation is an intrinsic opportunity for many property investors. Really, most property investors don't understand depreciation, and I'll just give you a quick overview on what it is. Basically, the building and inclusions or shuttles part of an investment can be depreciated. And of course, uh, the newer the property, the more depreciation it carries. There is a rule, any properties that were built before 1987, i.e. 1986, 1985, 84, 83, 72, do not carry depreciation. So depreciation is a 40-year allowance. So let's say you bought a property in that was constructed in the year 2000. It is now 2023. 23 years have passed. Uh, 
you bought a property that was built in the year 2000, but you bought it today. That property carries 17 years worth of building depreciation. There's 23 years gone for the building. There's 17 years left. 17 plus 23 is 40 years. So obviously, if you want to use depreciation as part of the value metric, the more modern the property, the more of it you'll get to use to help you hold real estate over time. So if you bought a newer property or a brand new property, let's say, uh, you would get 40 years worth of depreciation. Let's say that property is $400,000, the build, not the land, the build. Let's say the build is worth, the building is worth $400,000. You write that off over 40 years at 2.5% per annum. 2.5% per annum of $400,000 is $10,000. $10,000, basically over 50 weeks, let's call it, is $200 per week. That depreciation allowance offsets your tax and you can claim some of it back. And you don't have to wait to the end of the financial year. You can use what is known as a PAYG tax variation and claim back your de uh, depreciation over uh, your pay packet. So what we're doing that for, again, is to soften the money coming out of our back pocket to pay for growth. This really puts us in a position where we're quite often known as a value investor. We're sort of using uh, the loopholes in the system, the rent in the system, and we're trying not to cover so much out of our back pocket, which of course in the last decade was not such a problem because we had de-inflation, but obviously this decade, we're going to live with far more inflation than ever before. So again, the value model works quite well because it's propping up your position. Now, if we were to look at a property built before 1987, i.e. 1986, etc., and it's had very little renovation that can be written off, it's basically... Um, had uh, the, its original, um, uh, you know, look and feel, then we, are, we obviously um, are going to not have one of the three things we can use to prop up the asset. By way of example, what that looks like is your wage and the rent. They're the only two things you can use. So again, like if we look at um, assets where the real estate is uh, a piece of real estate where depreciation is also used, if we were to break down the three elements as to who pays what, uh, I can talk you through it. So in the model I've got in front of me, I've got a property that's worth 
$674,000. I've put in the calculator, uh, and this is just a scenario to explain it. I've put in the calculator that the rent is $500 per week, but this property is actually new, so it's going to get depreciation. I've put in a schedule from uh, BMT and Associates, and it's popped out who pays what. So in this example, out of 100%, the tenant is paying 57% of the running costs, the mortgage costs for this asset. The tax man is paying 34% of the holding cost of this asset and the investor is paying 10% of the holding cost of the asset. Again, uh, if you have a property which is just way too old with no um, essential depreciable items on it, and particularly no building depreciation, then of course the tenant and the investor is going to have to do the work. And this is where a lot of people today are running into a situation where they're really struggling when it comes to holding the real estate. So value investing is just a concept. It's not the only concept. There's other great concepts. Uh, It's just a formula certainly, which is possible in the real estate market. I'm not a believer as to there's right things and wrong things. Uh, I'm a tend to be a, let's choose a model that works for you. And this is a model that works for many property investors. So again, the value model also works on the concept that If we're going to choose a piece of real estate, a lot of the wealth is going to come from the value from that localized piece of property. And uh, if we're going to use the value model and buy a more modern property, how are we going to do that when it comes to the geography of our cities? And this is where, again, we can use what is known as a blended property opportunity, a blended value proposition. Now, if we think about suburbs, there are old suburbs and new suburbs. Now, the advantage of old suburbs is really you've got established neighborhoods, you've got lower debt levels in those areas. You've got an invested community who loves those areas. Uh, Generally, older areas are also places which have great uh, housing product types. They've got character homes. Um, And really, when we think about those areas, if you like, They've got a lot of things going for them. However, much of the housing in those areas is outdated. It has outdated building code compliance, more maintenance and repairs. If we think about, obviously, a new property and putting it in an old suburb, we can get the concept 
of the blend effect, the best of new, which is obviously even things like any energy efficient homes, customized, nice looking properties, um, obviously less wear and tear, things like that. Um, and we really, what we want to do is blend the both, the best of old character neighborhoods, established suburbs, uh, really those central places, middle, inner, outer, middle uh, locations, and the best of new, less maintenance, modern functionality, energy smart, really no capital costs, really you're not going to pay to modernize the property really over a 30 to 40 year period. Great designs and of course depreciation, which is going to help uh, future proof your world. And uh, really this is the concept of value investing, which is, which is really, really important. Today, because interest rates are a little bit higher, if you um, were to buy, um, it's a little bit different than what it was, say, two, two and a half years ago. Two and a half years ago, if you used the value model, you were pretty much positively geared because the rates were so low. It was always a bit of a limited kind of opportunity using those low rates because of pandemic once in a hundred year conditions. Uh, but the normal rate um, that we see in Australia, cash rate is is uh, circa 4%. And so typically borrowing money is like 5 5.5%, sort of where we find ourselves uh, today. So it is quite normal to carry a burn rate to create capital growth and carry negative cash flow. So again, we need to think about our time horizons as a property investor. If you're a value investor, you've got to have a time horizon of well over 15 years. You've got to give yourself enough bandwidth for your rents, to go from negative cash flow to positive cash flow. And this has certainly happened to me. My portfolio is now positive cash flow for anything I've owned longer than 12 years. It is all positive cash flow. The rents have effectively gone up so much that now income is higher than the running costs and, of course, the uh, mortgage costs to run the asset. So effectively, I'm now getting paid by the yield, by the rent to get capital growth, which is good levels of capital growth around that 6-7% per annum when annualized over a 10-year period. So again, like not much money uh, along that journey came out of the back pocket. Some did, but there was periods of change. And I want to explain those periods of change. Really, when you think about buying a property today, it could cost you after your uh, tax deductions and after you in the value investing model, uh, if you don't use the value investing model, you're probably uh, 
going to have to pay about 20000 per annum to run a property. If you use the value model, it's much less than that. It can be $100 a week, uh, which again is a lot easier than obviously $400 a week. So we're going to be negative cash flow if we buy real estate today using the value model. It's absolutely going to be the way. The only way for it not to be negative cash flow is for rates to come back down. But hey, that's just the way of the world. And to be honest, very normal. When I bought all, all those properties that have gone positive cash flow, I they were all started negative. Not one of them started with a yield that paid for the mortgage and the running costs. So there are some ingredients which you need to go and get when you buy a property using the value model. The first ingredient, which is a critical one, is affluence. Like you can't end up positive cash flow in 10 years' time with a tenant which is broke because they will not in 10 years' time be able to take the rent that you're charging them now, $350, and pay $700. Wage growth is not going to assist them to be able to achieve that. So just rule that out. If you want to wake up in 10, 12, 15 years' time and own an asset where the rent is paying you income to get that asset further over another cycle and another time horizon, you need to listen to what I'm saying. Tenants can be affluent and tenants can be broke. We obviously want to study and buy real estate in areas where there is good levels of wealth. The second thing we can look for to make sure that we go from year zero to year 10, 12 and go from negative cash flow to positive cash flow is the rent gap. The rent gap is really simple. Uh, People can pay around 30% of their income on rent. If we know we're in a suburb and there's a bit of a gap, that's okay because we know at some point those people in that suburb can pay more rent. It's actually a good thing. It can mean that you have a value-orientated piece of real estate which is undervalued from a rental point of view. And Obviously, there is always a reversion of the average and eventually it catches up. So we want the wealth gap. We want the rent gap. We obviously have talked about potentially using tax deductions. And of course, then we can do things like boosters to push our assets further and further. That could be if we're thinking about renovating or updating paint or adding an air conditioner or boosting our rental performance. We have to sometimes put more money down to push the yield further up. And of course, we can use demographic trends to push our property over time in the right direction where it goes from negative to positive. However, if we start very negative, very negative, 
whereby we are at the back of the pack when it comes to our yield, uh, that could mean it's just a dud property or it could be a high growth property. We're going to have to travel a lot further to end up positive cash flows, just the way it is. So again, uh, when it comes to demographics that we could use to influence our rental return, we can think about what that looks like when it comes to people and places. And I'm always a believer that you'll accelerate your rents over time using things like urbanity, tree change, sea change, green space. All of that stuff adds rental value. You could buy where there is a lot of knowledge in a suburb. Adds so much value to rental value. You could choose a brand suburb, a brand name suburb if you can get the property at the right price. People love living in brand name suburbs. You can create so many associated trends that link to better real estate performance and a faster point that you will reach your break-even point and then your positive cash flow point. And really, there are four points, if you like. Negative cash flow, break-even point, which we call neutrally geared. Then we have what is known as positively geared. Really, you're still using tax deductions to try and uh, uh, stay ahead of the running costs and mortgage of the property. And then we have really the other side of the journey, which is positive cash flow, where you really don't even need the tax deductions anymore because the income on the property is so good proportioned to the debt, mortgage costs, and running costs of the asset. Again, everything I've bought, which is now older than around 12 years, is positive cash flow. It's gone from negative cash flow neutral cash flow, positively geared where you just your tax deductions are, are causing a benefit to positive cash flow where really you could strip out everything and you're just getting paid more uh, to, to own that real estate. Obviously, if you still have a job, that goes on to your taxable income. And uh, ultimately, that happens to me. I basically have a job and then I get paid from real estate. But the point is the growth that you get on your asset goes hand in hand with the yield why we want to hold the real estate for a long period of time. If you want to hold real estate for 30, 40 years, then uh, the value model is not a bad model for you. If you want to hold real estate for five years, I don't think the value model is the right model. I would coach you through a different model. But if it's buy well, never sell, the value model is the model of choice in my world. And again, I'll bring it back to how much money can you afford to spend? Because if you can dump $500 a week, again, the value model may not necessarily be the right model for you because you could go for a more accelerated growth model. But if you need $500 a week in your back pocket to pay for your current mortgage, your car, your 
you know, taking your wife to um, the movies, all that kind of stuff. I get it. I get it. You have to create a trade-off. And ultimately, that is a decision you need to, to, need to make because uh, using the value model, you trade down a little bit of capital growth for more yield. It's basically the, the model as it works, which I'm totally fine with because, again, I don't really like living on beans and rice. Um, I have an expensive lifestyle. I have an expensive wife. I've got an expensive dog. So, uh, and I like living, I'll be honest. I like three holidays a year. I don't really want to, um, you know, just get the jackpot later in life. And it's just a decision I use with many of my investments. Albeit, I have also entered the high growth marketplace and used that burn rate to accelerate assets which are discretionary but i can tell you um you know you just you gotta be able to to you know back that up with some cash man that's just the way it is cash is king so market value is an interesting concept when it comes to value investing it is a really really important part of the puzzle because what happens for people is people have an obsession with market value. Market value is really the idea of something, what something's worth today. And it is a real short-term metric that does my head in because what it does is quite often for inexperienced property investors, they will base their decision on factors such as investor sentiment, what's selling at the moment. Um, they will base their decision on really just local market factors which often showcase to them a property which has really no value, albeit it is a good price. And price and value are really two different things. They are worlds apart. And of course, I think when sometimes people think they're value investors, they end up trying to find value in the market, but uh, they just find something cheap, not something that is stacked with what is known as intrinsic value. Market value is very short-term. It fluctuates. It's an influenced thing based on really the economy. Intrinsic value is a consideration of more long-term investing. And it's really, uh, it's, it's much broader than market value. So as a value investor, we also want to choose assets with lots of intrinsic value. And rather than choosing something which works in the short term, we're choosing something that works over the long term. Now, I'll give you an example. You can Google and just look at the photography of the asset. 
Uh, and you'll see what I'm talking about. If you Google Sydney Eastern Beaches Brick Home sells for nearly $50 million, you'll see that the home, which is basically a run-of-the-mill brick house, is not worth $50 million. The market value of that home is at best $8 million. It is not a $50 million home at a market value level. But if we look at the photography, and I would encourage you to Google it, you've got one photo which is the brick home, just the, the front of it. The second photo is an elevated aerial shot looking back down at the house. And what you will notice is the home sits on the edge of a breathtaking vista, water side uh, elevated position. And its intrinsic value is its location, its land, its and its view. And so someone who's bought this is not thinking about its market value, they're thinking about its intrinsic value, priceless real estate. I will pay $50 million for real estate, which is priceless because not of its market value, it's not worth uh, $50 million, but because of its intrinsic value, it could be worth uh, a fortune beyond $50 million because of its intrinsic value. So intrinsic value kind of refers to basically fundamentals which are inherent qualities to the property and it really is independent of market value. Now the frustrating thing for property investors is real estate valuers use market value. They seldom acknowledge intrinsic value and they seldom acknowledge that, uh, you know, that by way of example, that property uh, you know, has a never-to-be-built-out view sitting on a cliff, ocean views in one of Sydney's best suburbs, intrinsic value. A valuer would never recognise that. A valuer would go, this is a four-bedroom house, brick veneer, sitting in a prime location. Its comparable sale was down the street, around the corner, and uh, the market assessment of the asset is $8 million. However... Uh, for the actual real world, what they want is intrinsic value. The reason I talk about this is I want to make sure you kind of know the difference and don't cheat yourself out of big opportunities. Because again, if you're a value investor, you're, you're investing based on capital growth and yield. You're investing based on uh, the idea that you are looking for growth, but you're not investing on something cheap, okay? Don't misunderstand the word value too cheap. It is not what I'm referring to. As a value investor, you always want to buy intrinsic value, intrinsic value, the property's character, the the location, the size, the condition, the features, 
the, all of this contributes to its intrinsic value. And I always say, you know, as simple as it sounds, great land, great build, great um, location. And that is really intrinsic value. How do you put a value on a view? How do you put a value on proximity to schools? How do you put a value on proximity to transportation? How do you put a value on the quality of construction, materials used, architectural design? Uh, how do you put a value on the income generation of a property? How do you put intrinsic value? How does a value put intrinsic value on depreciation? How does a value put intrinsic value on unique landscapes or uh, the orientation or that what time the sun hits the uh, front bedroom? All of this is what is known as intrinsic value. How does a value put a value on environmental factors, air quality? The fact one house has seven trees, one has two. Which one has better air quality? Which one has better noise level control because of its foliage, intrinsic value. No one's ever got, like a value is never going to recognize that. And that's market value. It's a very different thing. And generally, property investors love market value. And the reason they love market value is it's just a straight algorithm that looks good on a spreadsheet and looks good to the bank. However, when people go to auction and properties go to auction and when you see those reports on the weekend, old mate paid $500,000 more for the property, they're not doing that to satisfy market value. They're doing that to satisfy uh, that they are falling in love with intrinsic value. And it's very, very, very different, very different. And so I would encourage you to buy intrinsic value. And if that means paying more or if that means argy-bargy hoo-ha when it comes to choosing a property and borrowing money from the bank, do it. Because for you to go from negative cash flow to positive cash flow, you're going to need an asset that carries intrinsic value along that journey. It can't just be a run-of-the-mill asset which will only ever swing in roundabouts under market conditions. Very, very, very important part of the puzzle. All right, folks, that's it from me. Thanks for tuning into the show. I'll catch you on the next episode as we talk more real estate. Thanks for tuning into the Urban Property Investor. To never miss an episode, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite app or on YouTube. And I would love it if you could give the show a rating and share it with your friends and family. In between episodes, you can always keep in touch with me by connecting on social media over Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Until we meet again on the next episode of the Urban Property Investor, take care and bye for now.